welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Eighty-eight years ago, it was the height of the Great Depression. Nearly 15 million were out of work. There was record hunger, homelessness, and despair. Franklin Delano Roosevelt had just been elected president, and he was facing an economic and political future in the country that looked uncertain. The prosperity gospel that supported unfettered capitalism and ushered in the Gilded Age was now being challenged. On May 1, 1933, a crowd of 50,000 marched through Union Square in New York City. It was a show of solidarity on International Workers' Day. Impassioned speeches calling for support of workers' rights, including the fight for an eight-hour workday and better wages. And in that crowd was a 35-year-old journalist and activist, Dorothy Day distributing the first edition of an eight-page printed newspaper that she began with Peter Morin, the Catholic worker, sold then and now for a single penny. Despite her activism and legacy of founding hospitality houses, most Americans know very little about her. So this week, we revisit my conversation with a filmmaker who hopes to introduce a new generation to Dorothy Day with his documentary, Revolution of the Heart. Well, I'm Martin Doblmeyer, and uh, our group is called Journey Films. We've been making film and television documentaries since the mid-1980s, about 35 films in all, all on religion, faith, and spirituality. Okay, so Martin, you are a documentary filmmaker in Alexandria, Virginia, my my niche is my religion, and my religion is my niche. I, I, I uh, that that's this is what we do. So why? Well, what drew you to that? Well, well, I have an undergraduate degree in religion. I have a master's degree in broadcast journalism uh, and filmmaking. So I've always uh, just found a path to be able to put those two together. I never saw a a career for myself as a pastor or as a clergy person. After years of searching and looking to see what it was I wanted to do with my life, I just decided that I wanted to take the religion background and couple it with communications, and this is this is where I wound up. I think of myself first not as a documentary filmmaker. I think of myself as somebody who's deeply interested in the issues of religion, faith, and spirituality, and the way to, that I can ask questions about that, I can communicate that, I can engage in conversations about that, is because I make films about that. What is it about faith, religion, and spirituality that draws you to it? Well, I mean, I'm always trying to understand context and perspective, and that's what's changing all the time. So 40 years of filmmaking with a focus on faith, religion, and spirituality, the culture has shifted radically. How has the cultural shift and its attitudes about religion affected the way you approach your craft? One of my favorite characters from the 20th century is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer, from his prison, was writing that there's going to be coming a time soon uh, where religious language is going to be very difficult. We're going to have to explain things in totally different ways. He was specific about language like redemption and salvation, grace. There'll be cultures of people who haven't got a clue about what that means, and I think we're at that time now. When I first began this work back in the 1980s, I could use language that was religion-specific. Redemption and grace, people understood what those terms mean. Not only in Christian terms, but I think sort of in the wider spectrum of use in faith. 
But today it's a different world, and I have to accept the fact that when I make a film, especially if I'm making a film for public television, which means that it has to have an appeal not only to the people who have a religion background, but in particular to people who don't. And and, and in fact, the big difference for me is that a lot of people today are suspicious about religion. They've seen so many cases where there's hypocrisy, there's deception. They've actually been burned. I've met oftentimes more people who have turned away from religion, had it in their upbringing, and then turned away from it than people that I've actually met who had no religion in their upbringing and then turned towards it. So that's one of the big differences. I have to be cognizant of the fact that people are suspicious about religion. They're doubtful about what it is that you're going to talk to them about and how the language that you're going to use. Uh, and in the end, that sort of that shapes how I go forward in the, in the making of whatever film I'm doing. That's a really interesting reflection. With that shift in attitude and that feeling of suspicion and distrust of institutions, why stick? with religion, spirituality, and faith? What, what what keeps bringing you back? Why is it that we need to know this stuff? Well, no, that's a great question. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I'll do public events with the films, and then people would come up to me afterwards and say, after all these years, after all these films, how can you not be cynical about religion? And, and I said that would be the natural response a lot of people would have. But uh, to be honest with you, I still see a lot of good that's going on out there. And I still get inspired by people who actually have made a decision consciously to follow what they feel as though their faith is calling them to do, and they're making the world a better place. Mm. So I don't want to be totally idealistic and naive about what it is that we're doing. But at the same time, I think that we have an opportunity to tell stories that are not being told in the media as often. So here we have a film that's, I think, a positive reflection about somebody who internalizes their faith and goes out and changes the world in a positive way. And that's getting a, a positive reception. So I think there's a hunger for people to see some kind of models that are out there, not just in biographical sense, but just models that tell them that, you know, people can still do good things in the name of the God that they believe in. How were you drawn to and why were you drawn to tell this story about Dorothy Day? Well, to me, she's one of the great stories of the, of the 20th century. Uh, when she died in 1980, She was already being called the most inspiring, important, and influential Catholic of the 20th century, which is a a big claim. But I I think in the last 40 years since her passing, she's not only become uh, solidified that role as the most interesting, informed, and inspiring Catholic of the 20th century, but her legacy has actually now reached out well beyond all of that. What do you mean? Who is it that you see gravitating towards the story of Dorothy Day? Well, I think one of the interesting facts, when Dorothy Day dies in 1980, there are 30 Catholic worker homes. These are homes that she created starting back in 1933, homes for the hungry and for the dispossessed and shelters for people who needed emergency housing. 30 homes when she dies in 1980. Today, there's over 200, getting closer to 250. And they're referred to as hospitality houses? Houses of hospitality. Houses of hospitality. I recently interviewed someone who is a part of one, and I was intrigued by that. I've also encountered hospitality houses that are open and welcoming to LGBTQ youth and uh, hospitality houses that are multi-faith. Where and how did Dorothy Day found hospitality houses? Well, first of all, the Catholic worker houses of hospitality are not a franchise. They don't all have to buy into a certain formula of behavior. They don't all have to sort of pay dues to a central office or something. 
a person can start tomorrow to decide that they want to open up a house of hospitality, call it a Catholic worker house, do it in the model of Dorothy Day, and they're up and running. And that's, that's good and bad. It's good because they're free to do whatever it is they want to do the way they want to do it, but also bad in the sense that when people identify Catholic worker houses, there's really not always a unanimity of how these houses run or organize. Sometimes they start up, and the National Office of Catholic Worker Houses has no idea uh, that they've actually begun these houses. And conversely, there's times when the houses shut down because they can't get enough volunteers or enough money to keep the houses open, and they have to close. So it's n- not the most organized organization, but still the legacy of Dorothy Day creating these spaces. Now, almost 100 years after they began, is still alive and well in the hearts of a lot of people. Well, let's back up for one second. Let's talk about Dorothy Day for a moment. My understanding is that she was not born Catholic. True. What is what is it, if you were to give me just a quick thumbnail on how did she get there? What was the road that Dorothy Day took? Well, she was born into a house where her mother and father did not practice their faith. The father, John Day, was a, a bit of a gambler. He, he covered uh, the, the horse races and speculation that he was an alcoholic, but he certainly was a professed atheist. So no religious background, really, as Dorothy Day's growing up. And yet, uh, if you read her memoir, she always talked about being haunted by God. So she's always somehow inclined to read the Psalms and to listen to spirituals. And all of these things that she believes were kind of working on her at a deeper level. So somewhere along the time of her late teens, early 20s, this is getting more apparent. But it's not until she's in her 20s, uh, when she has her first child, that she decides, you know, I've been living a bohemian lifestyle with lack of direction. I've been haunted by God for so many years. I think I'm going to take the plunge. And she has her child baptized into a faith, a Catholic faith, that she was not officially a member of at the time. Mm. And then she shortly afterwards decides, I should be baptized to be able to raise my child as a Catholic. And she becomes baptized. So this big transition happens in her mid-late 20s. And it really becomes a moment where she now sets the course of her life that's going in one direction now, really for the next 50 years. There's a gap of a couple of years between the time that she's baptized into the Catholic faith and the time that she starts this extraordinary work that we know now today as the Catholic Worker Movement. That doesn't happen until 1933, inspired by a fellow, a rather curious character by the name of Peter Morin, who just happens to cross her path. And do they become involved? If you mean romantically, yes, no. Yes, romantic, okay. No, and uh, he is more like a father figure. He's 23 years older than she is. But very influential in her life and her thinking. Very influential. I mean, she sees him as sort of like a nomadic prophet. Mm. He declares poverty as the way of life for him, and he influences her in that sense. He's a big scholar of uh, the saints. He's born on a farm in France. He's one of 23 children. Um, he's been studying the lives of the saints all of his life. He's always walking around with pockets filled with pamphlets of Christian social teachings. Uh, He was a very unique character. And at first, Dorothy wasn't sure what to make about him. She thought he was a little nuts. But then over a period of time, he begins to show her that the Catholic Church has social teachings that may very well line up with you, Dorothy, in terms of you wanting to do something special with your life and to combine your faith tradition and your sense of social justice right here is a nice place for you to be. And she picks up the mantle and she runs with it. That was Martin Doblemeyer, filmmaker and producer of Revolution of the Heart, The Dorothy Day Story. 
You are listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. If you missed any portion of our conversation, you can hear the full show on our podcast. Search Interfaith Voices wherever you listen. We continue my conversation with Martin Dobelmeyer after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, we are talking to filmmaker Martin Dobelmeyer about his latest documentary, Revolution of the Heart, The Dorothy Day Story. On May 1st, 1933, at a solidarity march for international workers, Day and three others wade through the crowd of nearly 50,000 gathered in Union Square, New York City. They distribute free copies of the Catholic Worker newspaper. And that day began with a big push from Peter Morin. Here's Dorothy Day reflecting on that decision in a clip from the documentary. The efforts of Peter Morin, a French peasant who felt a call to come to America, and he came to me because he read articles that I'd written about the social order and suggested we start the Catholic Worker newspaper. My first reaction was that uh, I'd like nothing better. I think it's the ambition of everybody who's been in journalism to start a paper, but I was very dubious about the funds. But He said in the Catholic Church, funds were never necessary. You just needed to start. And we found it worked that way. Let's get back to my conversation with filmmaker Martin Dobelmeyer, who describes what happens next. The first thing that they do is they start to create the newspaper. He says that you have to have a voice. You have to be able to speak truth to power. They had no money, but she had a background as a journalist. Her father had been a journalist. Her brothers were journalists. It was in her DNA. She decides, you know, I can do this. 
and she is able to borrow the money and launch what they call the Catholic Worker newspaper. It launches with 2,500 issues in 1933, and within a couple of years, they're publishing regularly 150,000 copies of the paper. Wow. And this is pre-internet, pre-social media, getting the word out the old-fashioned style. Yes, and I mean, at that early part of America where everybody, a lot of people had newspapers and they were all competing, but she found a niche and she was saying, look, we're going to speak about the most important social and political issues of our times. Who was the audience? Who gravitated towards her? Was it primarily Catholic? Was it labor? The country was also going through a tremendous shift in terms of identity, in terms of what the economy was looking like. I mean, there's some parallels that I can see a little bit to where we are today. There are a lot of uh, parallels, political and social parallels of the day. But clearly, you asked about the audience. I think they were handing the paper out on the street. Mm. The first comes out in May of 1933. This was the day of the March for Socialism and Communism. That's May Day's March. And that's when they begin handing out the newspaper. And it takes off from there. They call themselves the Catholic Worker Paper. So clearly, they had a Catholic marketplace that they were going after. They were trying to show that the great political and social problems that were, were being faced by the nation in 1933, the Catholics did have a thought about how to, how to respond to all of that. Uh, the papers were going out to people who were involved in labor movements. Uh, Dorothy Day had a, had a sense that capitalism had gone totally awry, and the, and the 12 million people that were unemployed and out on the streets and desperate in 1933 had lost as a result of capitalism that had gone awry. And one of the things that's really most interesting is that uh, in 1933, she begins the newspaper. And then people read in the newspaper about how we have to take care of the people, have to have to create places of hospitality for people. And some woman actually challenges Dorothy Day. She says to her, well, you're talking about houses of hospitality. Where are yours? And Dorothy Day said, you know, you're absolutely right. And they went out that day and got themselves a place, and that became the first house of hospitality. So she's welcoming these people who need meals and they need places to stay. And many of these people, I wouldn't say maybe most, but many, many of the people are recent immigrants to the United States. This was a time in the 1920s and 30s when you had this huge wave of Poles and Italians and Irish that were coming over to the United States. In droves, the demographics of America was changing dramatically. A lot of these people were immigrants, and Dorothy Day would simply say, I see in the face of these people the face of God. And I am called to respond. The Beatitudes tell me I need to respond to who these people are. Tell me that's not a measure of what's happening in our climate today. When did you learn about Dorothy Day? Was it in the making of this movie? No, actually, I was a very young uh, reporter at a Catholic newspaper in Providence, Rhode Island in the 1970s. This is, of course, towards the end of Dorothy Day's career. But I was following her and I knew what she was all about. Uh, And I guess the real surprise to me now is I've made all these films and it's taken me this long to get around to telling the story of Dorothy Day. She always had a place in my heart. The thing about Dorothy Day is you, you may not agree with everything she stood for, probably don't agree with everything she stood for, but she was incredibly consistent and faithful to her understanding about how God, she felt, was leading her. And uh, despite the fact that you may have terrible issues on certain things that she stood for, you have to admire the authenticity of her life. Mm. She really took it authentically, and she decided to go all in. And that's the thing that I think is haunting for me as a person of faith. I, I look at that, and I wonder whether or not, in fact, in my own life, I figured out a way to make compromises uh, against the sacred texts that I believe in. So you can you can get up in the morning and you can recite the text, but then somehow during the course of your own day, you kind of navigate what that really means to live in the world. 
and economic situations, and uh, Dorothy Day would have none of that. And that's what been, I think, probably the most haunting thing for me in the process of making the film. I have to question myself to see whether or not I go far enough every day. The idea of telling the story of someone who was so deeply rooted in living an authentic life that it became a mirror for you almost to ask yourself, how do I live and, and exp express my values and my beliefs if they are so animating in how I see the world? Are they animating in my actions? I think that's the, the reason why I got into this work, you know, 30 plus years ago, because I was trying to figure out ways that I could live in this world, read these books, meet these people, have these kind of conversations, and almost on a daily basis call myself in a sort of a corrective way to see how I was doing, use these films and the subjects of the films as some barometer. Uh, there are days I think I'm doing it okay, <laughs> other days I'm not so sure. Did you have any surprises when you sat down to make this? Surprises come in good and bad forms. So in a good sense, uh, going back then, uh, just over these last couple of years, and rereading her, her own writings, mm -hmm. her wonderful autobiography, The Long Loneliness, and the other books, um, and the articles that she wrote so regularly um, in the Catholic Worker paper, uh, I just came to admire her again as a good writer. She was succinct. She was forceful in her language or very articulate, and I admired that. I, I think in our culture today, if I can say it, I think we're losing the gift of being able to write well, and I think she's a wonderful model for that. Uh, but that's the surprise on the good side. On the other side, um, there are lots of surprises that came across that um, sort of left me wondering, what does that mean? 1917, she's in Washington, D.C. She gets arrested for being part of the demonstrations demanding the right of women to vote. She gets arrested and gets beaten up in jail. And then, curiously enough, and there's no explanation for it, throughout the course of her own life, she never voted. In fact, historians of the suffragette movement note that Day was a member of Alice Paul's Silent Sentinel. Day was one of the 33 women arrested on November 14, 1917, for silently protesting outside the White House shortly after the re-election of Woodrow Wilson to a second term. Day, along with 32 protesting women, was taken to the Occoquan Workhouse in Virginia. In the book, Jailed for Freedom, Doris Stevens includes the account of Mary Nolan, who described how Day had been handcuffed and abused by guards, who, quote, twisted her arms above her head and then banged her down over the arm of an iron bench twice. Dobelheimer explains here again the complicated relationship to government and how there is very little first-person accounts from Day about that experience. She never voted. There's just no explanation for it. I've talked to her family and other people, historians. There's no real succinct explanation for it. And she doesn't pay her taxes. She doesn't pay federal taxes. She absolutely insists that she's not going to pay federal taxes. She pays local taxes. She believes that the, the community that she's living in and the communities that she's creating all around the country are drawing on the municipal needs of fire and police and things like that. So she pays local taxes. But she will not pay federal taxes because she's deadly afraid that money would be used to continue the military expansionism that was happening. And so they wind up coming after her. The, the IRS comes after her, says, look, you owe $300,000 in back taxes. What happened then? Ultimately, she, says, she said to them, no, she's in her late 70s. 
And she doesn't have property. She has nothing to take. And they basically said, you owe $300,000. And she said, well, here's what, I, what you should do. Come up with an exact number that I owe you, and I won't pay it because I can't support what it is that you're doing. And in the end... The, she sounds feisty. <laughs> and in the end, the IRS decided to back, back off. They just let it go. They never, they never chased her anymore. I mean, there was nothing to chase, frankly. Yeah. It was either that or jail. It wasn't like they could take her houses or you know, take her salary or anything and else like that. And at this point in her 70s, she's also... She's a, a she's celebrity. Frail. I mean, she's frail, but she's also... She's known. She's a celebrity of sorts and has a constituency. Well, she does, but that celebrity also means that she has a public statement that she's not paying her federal taxes. So for the IRS, this is a real balancing act. Do we want to let this go? What kind of a sign are we sending out? And they let it go. They let it go. That's Martin Doblemeyer, a filmmaker whose documentary, Revolution of the Heart, the Dorothy Day Story, is available for streaming at pbs.org. Coming up after the break, we continue our conversation about her complicated relationship with government and church hierarchy. If you joined us late, you can hear the full conversation in our podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices wherever you listen. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining us, we're talking to documentary filmmaker Martin Doblemeyer. His latest project, exploring the life and legacy of social justice activist Dorothy Day, is available for streaming at pbs.org. It's called Revolution of the Heart, the Dorothy Day Story. Doblemeyer notes that as social conditions deteriorate and echo the struggles of the Great Depression, There is a new generation discovering Dorothy Day's work and activism. She was a suffragette, a member of Alice Paul's Silent Sentinel in her 20s. She embraced socialist ideals and was an activist journalist who later converted to Catholicism. Day was able to meld her personal faith with a very public calling to serve those in need and engage in activism. Let's take a listen to a clip from the documentary. Many come to us in their hungers, which bread alone, or even the best meal, does not satisfy. What they come to us for is human warmth. We're living in these times, a time of tremendous failure, of man's sense of uh, responsibility for what he is doing. You relinquish it to state. He's not obedient to his own the promptings of conscience. We get back to my conversation with Doblemeyer with a question about Day's nuanced views about government, specifically over the issue of taxes. What strikes me about her comfort in paying local or municipal taxes versus paying federal taxes is this distinction she makes about her agency in directing that she can participate somehow in in guiding and holding accountable the individuals that are entrusted with those resources how is that belief 
reflected in her political ideology? Well, I, I think the one thing about Dorothy Day that I have to admire is that uh, she didn't overthink things. Really? She, she really didn't. Uh, she just she responded to most of what was going on around her instinctively. She just had an instinctive sense that this is right and this is wrong. We're going to do this. We're not going to do that. Now, she, she collaborated with everybody in the world that was around her, everybody in her universe, but she responded mostly instinctively to what was going so on. So she wasn't doing polls and focus groups before she, she made a decision. She was not. She would just respond, like yeah. I said, uh, out of a, a gut sense of this is what God is calling us to do and let's move forward with it. Was she like a cult figure of sorts? To me, at least, the word cult figure sort of creates a, a, a concern, a language that I think would be concerning for a lot of people. She was certainly admired by many, uh, and she was seen as a red flag by others, and that makes her makes her interesting from a filmmaking point of view, uh, but also creates its own sense of of dilemmas because the Catholic Church is dealing with how they want to think about her institutionally. Uh, and other people are gravitating towards her, especially young people. They just love Dorothy Day's sense of being defiant, her willingness to say, look, let's go out and get arrested today and talk about why we have to end the buildup of nuclear weapons. And young people love that. Mm -hmm. Let's talk today about the rights of workers to have a decent wage. And the reason why we have unemployment is because the corporations aren't paying people a decent wage. Uh, People can't survive on the money that they're making. Let's go out and make that thing known. And young people then and continue, I think, to, to gravitate towards that because they have a sense that they can actually make the world a better place. The young people especially haven't yet been worn down by the hard realities, the harsh realities of the world we live in. And they're still out there being the champions for things. She continued to attract young people. And, and, and I think that's what gave her energy. Somebody asked me recently, well, you know, if you look at Dorothy Day, you rarely see her smile. I went to Catholic school, as I think I mentioned to you before we started the conversation, and I remember seeing a portrait of her. It was like a side profile. She had gray hair. It wasn't particularly, you know, pulled back neatly. It was in a braid, and she looked sad. Dour. Dour, yeah, Yeah. and like a burden was on her. I can only make, as a documentary filmmaker, um, a film using the materials that I have available to me. So photographs and audio clips and film clips that we were able to find. And by and large, Amber, most of them showed a Dorothy Day who was very somber, almost dour, felt as though she had the weight of the world on her shoulders. There are stories about how sometimes she would close the door and weep for a day or two because of all the sadness that was going on around her, all the pain and suffering that was going on around her. I think that's what makes her, in many ways, a prophetic voice. I see her really as one of the great prophetic voices of the 20th century. Prophetic voice not in the sense that she's able to foresee in the future. That's only part of it. Um, But prophetic because I think in some ways um, it's the unique prophetic voice who, who reveals the heart of God to all of us. And I think that sense of the pain and suffering that was coming in every day into her Catholic worker houses, um, she felt that pain and suffering more, I think, than most of us mm-hmm. do. And she responded to it out of a genuine sense of empathy and a connectedness. She really did, if you can imagine, she really did see the face of God in the people who were needy and coming into her house. The way in which you're describing a woman who felt the weight of the world, and and again, I'm I'm recollecting pictures that I saw as a child, 
And the idea of her going behind closed doors and weeping as she felt this enormous responsibility. I wonder how threatening that must have been to political leadership at that time. Here she is emerging as a prophetic voice, starts a newspaper, starts this movement of hospitality houses, openly challenging and providing young people with a different frame for thinking about the way capitalism is supposed to be kind of accepted and embraced as the way forward, uh, challenging the prosperity gospel ethos at the time, right, directly. How did the political leadership, how did the elites respond to Dorothy Day? Well, of course, she has a career that spans almost 50 years. That's, first of all, that's the remarkable thing. And uh, for much of it, she spent the time on the FBI watch list. J. Edgar Hoover identified her as a dangerous threat. He was actually deciding regularly whether or not they should charge her with sedition, a serious offense. Um, and she was on the watch list in case there was going to be a national disaster of some kind. She was, she was one of the people that was on the list to be able to make sure that you knew where she was at all times. Catholic bishops had a hard time with her for a number of different issues, especially in the 1940s, 30s and 40s, where Catholics were emerging uh, as uh, an identity in America. The numbers are now growing, and Catholics want to be identified as good Americans. There's this constant tension in the 50s and 60s with communism, and the Catholics want to be identified as good Americans, and that meant being strongly anti-communist. And here's Dorothy Day, who has clearly interest in supporting notions of socialism, not so much communism as it was applied in Russia and, and places like that, but she makes a trip in the ni early 1960s to Cuba and comes back and saying, well, here we have a, a little revolution that's happening. A revolution can be a good thing. People, the workers' rights are starting to be heard now, finally. So you can see, in some ways, back in that kind of climate, why a p person like J. Edgar Hoover would see her to be dangerous, really dangerous, and especially during the Second World War, mm -hmm. where a lot of people would have said, this is a justifiable military engagement. We have to use force to stop this. And Dorothy Day remained a pacifist. That was really threatening to a lot of people, and a lot of Catholics backed away from her. Today, the movement to have Dorothy Day canonized Walk me through a little bit the shift in the hierarchy. I mean, do you address this in the film? Um, the film is a biographical film, so hopefully it'll be around for generations. Uh, so it, does, it doesn't sort of take on what's happening today, other than the fact that at the very end we have a little epilogue that says that when Dorothy Day died, there were 30 Catholic worker houses. Today there are 200 and almost 250. Mm -hmm. And that in 2000, the year 2000, formally they opened up the cause of her canonization. And that's what's in process right now. So um, what I think is really interesting is that um, according to church directives, uh, the cause for her canonization needs to be rooted uh, in the geographic area where she, where she was, and she was in New York. And so then it became incumbent on then Cardinal John O'Connor to decide if he wanted to take this forward. And he does. He sort of implements the notion of uh, Dorothy Day's um, movement towards canonization, and she gets deemed uh, as a, the first step, step is called a servant of God, which is what she has been considered now. What's really interesting to me is that Cardinal John O'Connor, especially during the 1980s, right after Dorothy Day passes away, um, he's in charge of the Catholic Church's office for the military vicariate. He's the representative cardinal to the military. 
and he was one of the most outspoken critics of the bishops' documents in the 1980 when they talk about war and peace and sort of rethinking about the Catholic Church's position about that. And he was vehemently against that. He spoke out against that. And so now he has a, a, some personal conversion that says Dorothy Day represents, uh, is a New Yorker and a true New Yorker, and we need to advance her cause. <laughs> I know that there was pushback to Cardinal O'Connor by the military saying, is this the kind of person that you want to support for canonization? But now we're 20 years into that process. It began in uh, uh, 2000, and so we're 20 or so years into that process. Is there and, a time limit on it? I don't know. I'm not familiar with the process. Uh, you know, I, I, I just gave a speech at St. Norbert's in uh, St. Norbert's College in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, St. Norbert was a, a, a saint from the 1100s who, di- who dies in the 1100s and isn't canonized until the 1500s. So there are 400 years between his dying and his canonization. So people see Dorothy Dane really now on a fast track when, by historic standards, by church standards. Mm. She's on a bit of a, a fast track. But it looks as though by the end of this year or maybe 2021, mm-hmm. the next phase of the process will have been completed. And that phase means collecting everything she ever wrote. Every person who's had influence on her life and knew her life, so her family members and those who worked in the Catholic Worker and things like that, they all have to be interviewed. The Catholic Church is very cautious about um, who they declare a saint. But that second process is going to end shortly, and then that'll all be brought over to Rome, and then they will ruminate on that for a while. Dorothy Day herself had her position on abortion, her own experience having had one, uh, being a mother, and then going through her conversion um, and embracing Catholicism and then becoming a strong advocate against the access to abortion. And the other is her political alliance or sympathies to anarchy or socialist and Marxist ideas and reconciling that with her Catholic faith. Boy, she sounds like a complicated person. Well, well, I mean... You know, in today's political world, it's very difficult to be complicated and to evolve. And it seems like Dorothy Day was able to do that. I think in some ways she's able to embody these contradictions in her own life. So, yes, she does have an abortion. She struggled over that. Doesn't write about it a lot. Apparently it 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 deeply wounded her. Uh, When she was able to get pregnant out of wedlock with foster And he decided that he wasn't going to marry her. And she decided that she was going to raise this child on her own. So there are lots of issues around that. But then throughout the course of her own life, especially after 1973 when the Supreme Court makes its statement about abortion, regularly she uses the term that she believes that abortion is genocide. Mm -hmm. She perceives that it's going to be used as a way to reduce the population of the poor and the recent immigrants, and that's what she's most concerned about. So we talk about the abortion in her earlier years in the film. We, I think that's a, a major turning point for her. But once she has her first daughter, um, that every, everything sort of changes. And, and it was a crude abortion, abortion, apparently, according to all accounts. And so just being able to be pregnant for her, was a, she was just thrilled. Mm-hmm. And this time she was not going to take the choice that she had done before. So in 1980, was she opposed to safe and legal access? She was opposed to abortion. I mean, she was. She didn't write about it a lot. She was one time identified as someone who was 
supportive of pro-choice, and there's accounts of her standing up at a meeting and say, you got me wrong. So she was pretty clear about that. And her political affinity to Marxist or anarchist thinking. I mean, I will tell you a misconception I had about anarchy was that it's it's an embrace of chaos and a rejection of all hierarchy and all authority. And, you know, and then I learned that actually it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It is. And certainly she was part of that camp that saw it as nuanced. She was not out there to sort of tear down the systems. The the line that um, Peter Morin, her mentor, uses that we're out to build a new world in the shell of the old. What does that mean? Well, it means that we can still use some of the structures that are there, but we need to rethink the way that we approach things. And one of those things is, is the social and political priorities that we have in this world. Money shouldn't be driving everything. The needs of the people should be driving everything. And how important is it in her political worldview that people be able to have voice in participating in directing what those communities look like? Well, she was deeply influenced, especially in the 19-teens and the 20s, by the socialist revolutions. She believed in the masses. She believed in the power and the rights of, of people being able to shape their own destiny. Mm-hmm. She believed that. And that really, in a, in a sense, is not all that far away from the Catholic social teaching that was coming out in the late 1800s. So once she realized that, she was able to put the, the social issues and political issues that she really wanted to champion and her faith tradition together. And that's where I think she found her comfort zone. She doesn't talk a lot about anarchy later on in her life. She sees systems needing to be changed. There needs to be a whole new sense of distribution. She sees a holistic approach to it. Catholic workers will go out and get farms where they can grow their own food. They're thinking about this Early uh, farm-to-table movement. It was. It wasn't very successful. That's the problem. There's some funny lines, actually, in the film because we talk about the fact that they were were pretty good at, at opening up the doors and feeding people, but they weren't that good as farmers. Mark Masser, a friend of mine, says that uh, how are you going to be able to talk about Catholic social teaching when you're just trying to harvest the corn and get the corn to table (laughs) is quite interesting. They had no idea what they were getting into when they were actually starting these farm projects. And they didn't do all that well, frankly. They started to close down pretty quickly. But it was one more venture that they saw as part of the whole approach to be able to say, we need to live in an autonomous way. We need to be able to raise the foods that we eat, feed the people that we need to feed. Where did people of different faith traditions or minorities fit in? How did Dorothy Day respond to or see this new wave of immigrants, many of whom bringing different religious traditions that were outside the Judeo-Christian history of this country? Well, that's a great question. I mean, she identifies the worker movement that she creates as a Catholic movement. They have regular Catholic worship and practices. They have Catholic teachings that are happening within the confines of the of the spaces that they had created. But she was always attracting, always attracting people of a wide variety of faith and some with no faith at all. They came because they believed in the work that was being done and it fit a personal need for them and she always created a space for that. So she never saw it as being Catholic in the sense that it was exclusive to anybody else. Everybody was at the table as far as she was concerned. I think one of the reasons um, why I wanted to make the film and why I see uh, Dorothy Day as a model uh, is because in some ways she reflects a sense of conscience about the nation. Well, I think if you take the Lord's words, you'll find they're pretty rigorous. The Sermon on the Mount may be read with great enjoyment, but when it comes to practicing it, it really is a an examination of conscience to see how far we go. 
she's interesting to me because she she deals on two widely diverse levels. She's the one who's actually opening up a door, literally physically opening up the door and saying, if you haven't got a meal, come in. We'll take care of you. We're going to do that. But at the same time, she's also writing and speaking out and protesting and trying to bring attention to the systems that have created the poverty that she sees coming in the door every, every day for her. So she, I think, is one of these great voices of conscience for the nation. That's not changing. That's not going to change. I mean, we still have... have poor in our midst. We still have made decisions about where the appropriations of our funds are going to go. We're still paying vast amounts of money uh, for, to build up our arsenals for a, an enemy we're not even sure who, who, who that enemy is. All those things are the things that she fought back against. Corporations are still, they're becoming a little bit more enlightened about how they have to take, take care of their workers. But it was awful in her day. It was absolutely dreadful in her day. People will say that it's not all that improved in our own day. So you have a lot of people who are living on the margins, working full-time and living on the margins. So I think a lot of what she lived for, a lot of what she stood for, a lot of what she believed is just as important today as it was in her own day. Mm. When you talk about worker rights, I think about the global supply chain and the conditions of a lot of workers who are part of the supply chain around the world in countries where Catholicism is also taking hold or is, is very much a part of the fabric of the country. Is Dorothy Day an international figure in your mind? Yes, there, there are about 250 or so Catholic worker houses. About 40 of them are outside of the United States, a number in Canada and England, but there's also ho homes in South America and in Asia. It could be argued that there is an international text mm -hmm. uh, to what it was that she created. I think there's there's just no question that the need continues. I mean, ultimately, um, the line that the poor are always with you, tragically, it remains as, as true today as it was in her own day. I just think that as a woman deciding to do this back in the 1930s, uh, taking this on on her own, Imagine in the 1930s how many desperate people there really were coming into that house. And here she is as a young woman, a young, attractive woman in the 1930s, opening up the door, making sure the food is on the table, making sure there's a place to stay, all of that. And knowing that there are going to be days when there, there's a physical unrest going on in these houses. There are stories about Catholic worker, workers being beaten and hurt and injured on the soup lines and everything. It's tough work. It's really, really difficult work. And it's, there's an inclination to want to sort of romanticize it. But it's tough work. And she was there, and she met that need every single day. Mm. When you say it's tough work, one word comes to mind, trauma. Well, I've had the, the gift to be able to travel around the world a lot. And uh, I think this, um, this America of ours is the most difficult country in the world to be poor in. Everything around you says that this is a society that only honors those who have lots of money to spend, disposable income. Everything around sort of propels you to take a lifestyle that in some ways may, might even make you feel uncomfortable yourself, but you're going to do whatever it, it takes to sort of get into the American way of thinking, of getting money, getting things, getting success. Dorothy Day walked away from all of that. Not only did she care for the people who were poor, but she decided to take on voluntary poverty for herself and insist upon it for everybody who's in her community. And that's in particular what attracted a lot of people who saw that as a totally countercultural move in the United States of America. And how, how can you not admire that? I mean, she really created something that said, look, this is the American value. This is the value that I think God is calling us to live. And they're not the same.
If your brother is hungry, you feed him. You don't meet him at the door and say, go be thou filled. You sit him down and feed him. Doblemeyer is not alone in his admiration of Day's embodiment of American values. Here is Pope Francis from his historic 2015 address to the United States Congress. In these times, when social concerns are so important, I cannot fail to mention the servant of God, Dorothy Day, who founded the Catholic Worker Movement. Her social activism, her passion for justice and for the cause of the oppressed were inspired by the gospel, her faith, and the example of the saints. A nation can be considered great when it strives for justice and the cause of the oppressed, as Dorothy Day did. He lifts up four Americans. President Abraham Lincoln, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Thomas Merton, and Dorothy Day. The documentary includes not only Dorothy Day's words, but a mix of interviews, including conversations with actor Martin Sheen, theologian Cornell West, activist Jim Wallace, Joan Chittister, Sister Simone Campbell, Robert Ellsberg, and Senator Tim Kaine. Martin, thank you so much for joining me. How can a listener watch this documentary? The title of the film is called Revolution of the Heart, the Dorothy Day story. You can get it on Amazon. You can come to us at Journey Films, J-O-U-R-N-E-Y-F-I-L-M-S dot com. In addition to uh, the film itself and the other films that we've done over the years, uh, we have a lot of educational material that we've stored at the Journey Films website. So if you want to use it in college and seminary and your congregation to talk about Dorothy Day and the issues that are raised, we have all that material there for you. Martin Doblemeyer of Journey Films, director of Revolution of the Heart, the Dorothy Day story. In this week's show notes, we will also include links to segments from our archives, including conversations with Dorothy Day's granddaughter, Kate Hennessy, and a segment that includes a short interview with Robert Ellsberg, both of whom, by the way, are featured in the documentary. If you missed any portion of this conversation, you can catch the full broadcast as a podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices wherever you listen. If podcasts are not your thing, you can also just stream it straight from our website at interfaithradio.org. While you are there, check out our archive of recent episodes and sign up for our newsletter. If you have ideas for an upcoming episode, comments, or just want to share some ideas, send me an email at amber at listeninspired.org. That's all for this week. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, MC Yogi for our theme music, and this week's producer, Kevin McCarthy. Wherever you are, I hope you are well. Stay safe, stay distant, stay connected. See you next week.